Lord God, I'm mindful that there's so much going on tonight. And parts of our group are preparing to leave town and we're, our minds and our, our logistical abilities are somewhere else. Lord, we even know that tonight there's people in our group who are going through different things that are just distracting us. And Lord, we should pay attention to those things. But for the time being, Lord, just for the next few moments, will you give us a supernatural ability to focus and understand this about you? Because for sure we're not doing this for knowledge's sake. In fact, the temptation is just to discard this entire topic and just move on. Because I feel like it's so difficult for finite beings to ever know anything that's true about you in an infinite sense. I just feel like we can't do it. And I'm tempted to just move on. But Lord, I know that we should resist that temptation. Holy Spirit, make yourself known to us today. Your true nature, Lord, who you really are. Give us the ability, even beyond our own abilities, to be able to appreciate something about you. Pray this in your name. Amen. This is um, where we kind of spent some time defining God. We define God as unique, spirit, creator, and outside the realm of time. In the second talk, I walked you through each one of those and showed you verses that describe who God is, and then moved on to the next part, which is, if God is those things, is the God the Father that we usually think about the only person that possesses those qualities? And we found out that actually Jesus, the Son, possesses the same qualities. I felt like we actually had a real breakthrough in our second talk on the Trinity. It's one of those I know when we edit down a CD and really make that available, it's going to be one of those things that's powerful because there was some real truth spoken during that time. And I believe it was the Spirit explaining to us and letting us speak that there is something very mystical, but yet we can still grasp it at times. And I feel like that was one of those nights we actually began to grasp it. We looked at the words that opened John and tried to understand. Remember, we walked through the Greek very carefully and looked at the fact that John was being very intentional on saying that Jesus was with God, was God, but that his use of the Greek was such that he was trying to imply that that doesn't mean that he was necessarily just equal to God. Go to the next slide. We'll take a look at that real fast, Anthony. When we looked at the Greek saying, and the word was God, we came up with this mathematical formula that the word equals God but God is not limited to the word. And that was the brilliance of John using his language to explain something that only makes sense if you believe in the Trinity. Only makes sense if you understand the doctrine that he's professing that this would just be utter gibberish if he wasn't really pointing to the fact that God is greater than just Jesus. In fact, we know that because we're thinking, wait, there's the Father, there's the Son. Okay. Now, so far, if you've noticed, everything we've talked about so far has been limited to God the Father and the Son. All right? I have not even begun to talk about the Holy Spirit, and there's a reason for that. I think it's much more difficult to incorporate it. Let me say it in plain English. Most times when people are looking to talk about the Trinity, they're trying to find an instance in the Bible where like, they go, aha, you see? Here's all three at one time. What's the famous one that's cited? When Jesus is being baptized, and what's the quotation there usually given? Like, what's, what's the significance? You have, you have Jesus there being baptized, right? You have God speaking, and you have the dove flying over, right? And they go, ah, you see, they're all there at the same time. Okay? 
I, I don't take anything away from that. But what's hard is when you're dealing with somebody, there's nothing doctrinal going on there. There's no proclamation going on there. That's an instance of them appearing in the same place. What I'm trying to do is build a case against somebody who has strong objections to the Trinity, okay, by walking through carefully. But the concept that I came up with on, for this as a theme is on the next slide. Go to that slide if you could. Look at it this way. What my simple crude rule is for building the doctrine of the Trinity and for understanding God and his triune nature is the way I stated it. If I can get you to two, I can get you to three. What that basically means is if you think about it from a logical perspective, most people who have a problem with the Trinity, they're not really worried that there's three persons in one being called God. That's not what they're troubled by. They're troubled by anything greater than one person being one God. That's the trouble for them. They don't understand, and I'm not saying that we have yet grasped it, how God can be one and yet have these persons in his being. So it wouldn't matter if there were two, five, nine, twelve. It wouldn't really matter. Okay? In the end, what's really important is that it's greater than one. Remember, we talked about in the Old Testament, the Shema, which is always being repeated about the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And people have a strong objection to saying, why was it that we repeated this over and over and over and over? And then suddenly, when we get to the New Testament, they go, hey, I got news for you. Actually, it turns out, there's actually three of them. You're like, wait a minute, I thought everything in the New Testament was supposed to be consistent with the Old Testament. And that's a very valid objection. And I want to cover it. Okay? But I'm not there yet, because I'm still trying to build this building block by building block. So my crude rule for you right now is if I can get you to two, we can get to three. I just want to show you that first, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God. And that he is of one essence with the Father. Most people say, show me. And I know that the most popular one is say, let's look at the baptism of Jesus. Because there's a trinity right there. But the reason I said it's not a proclamation of the doctrine is there's no words there that say, and the dove was God. You know what I mean? Or the dove was even the Holy Spirit was. I mean, it doesn't come out and just say, let me spell it out for you. Tonight, we're going to spell out what is said about Jesus and what Jesus says about himself to establish at least this one fact, that no matter what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about the Bible, it's undeniable that the Bible says that Jesus is God and that Jesus said it about himself. Okay, That's the step we're going to take. It's not a very big step, but it's foundational because if we don't make the step and make it correctly... We're still trying to argue this kind of idea of like, well, I saw them one time in the Bible, all three of them. That's, that's how we know the Trinity's there. It's like, actually, I'm not concerned with the three of them so much as I'm concerned with the people who have an objection that God can only be one. It doesn't make any sense to say there's more than one person in this one being. Okay? So that's what we're looking at tonight. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about himself? Does it claim that he's God? Does he claim that he's God? Okay? Go to the next slide, Anthony. Let's start look at that. Okay, let's start with the testimony of others, the Bible. And I'm going to do a little bit of Old Testament, New Testament to show you that there's a parallel because there's people who say, no, you know, the claims seem to change in the New Testament. But I want to show you. First of all, here's the Messianic prophecy itself from Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, 
A son will be given to us. And the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. What words jump out at you there that really kind of seem to indicate that this is not just a normal person we're talking about? Mighty God. God. Let's focus on Mighty God for a second. Because if you're going to object to this as being a messianic prophecy, which of course we spent four or five weeks walking through what is and what is not, and objections to messianic prophecies, can you imagine anybody being born that's going to be called Mighty God, where Isaiah, who's God's prophet, is saying, somebody's going to be born and we're going to call him Mighty God. Wouldn't that just be outright blasphemy in the Old Testament? And yet that's how we know it's a messianic prophecy. Here's the fulfillment. Thomas sees the Lord. Thomas is the one who's been doubting for a while that Jesus is risen. So one day the Lord decides he's going to appear to Thomas. And this is what Thomas explains when he sees him. He says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. What's the connection? I just want to comment that there's, there Thomas was really surprised. So my God is not like my God, but it's like, oh my oh God. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. The, uh, the alternative interpretation of the Bible. <laughs> Thomas makes a clear declaration of the Lord. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I know you're happy to see me, but I'm not, the, I'm not God. All right. He actually just goes on and, and just assumes that the statement is correct. Thomas has been doubting, sees the Lord and goes, my Lord and my God. He proclaims him to be God. And Jesus does not correct him in any way because he's made a true statement. Think about it from any perspective under Jewish law that would be absolute blasphemy unless we're talking about the Messiah who is God because it couldn't just be a regular person. Someone comes right out and says to Jesus, you are God, and he doesn't say anything other than, yes, I am. And you should have believed in me without seeing me, but at least you believed in me. All right, here's another example of matching Old Testament ideas describing who God is. God says of himself through Isaiah, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. I underline I am he because this is the form of I am the Lord uses, like when he responds to Moses. When they ask for your name, who do I tell him? Just says I am the I am. You know, this is the I am, the holy I am, that a lot of times is actually capitalized in some writings because it just, it's so, it's really God describing himself by his name. I am, or I am he, put together, okay? Our English doesn't really have a good word to translate it correctly, but... You're going to see it come up over and over. So basically, God through Isaiah is saying, I'm the first and the last, I am he. Revelation describes Jesus this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's how we know we're talking about Jesus and not just anybody else. Jesus is the one who was pierced. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Again, 
The reference means that the Lord that we're talking about, the God that we're talking about, is the one who is pierced. The him we're talking about is Jesus, and yet he identifies himself in the passage as the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? Now you could say, hey, this is just John having a dream. He's just writing. And that's why I've kind of classified this under what others testify about Jesus. It's clear that John has an agenda both in his book and in Revelation to identify Jesus as God. He begins it with the prologue. In Revelation, he makes it clear and over and over. And in fact, the next slide does the same thing. Go to that as well, Anthony. Again, more passages from Revelation. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. Could God have been dead? When he says, I was dead, it's clear that the one who is talking, the living one, the one who is claiming to be the first and the last is Jesus. And yet he's using words that throughout the entire Old Testament and in the New Testament only connote God. They only point to God. I am the first and the last. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Revelation, written through John's words, is making it clear even more that the person I'm speaking of as the Alpha and the Omega, i.e. God, is Jesus. Revelation 22, 12 through 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. Just to make it you know, extra clear, that there's a claim in Revelation and that vision by John that the one is Jesus and he is God. Okay? What does that give us? First block that we're building on is there is clear testimony in the Bible. You can disregard it if you don't believe the Bible, but if you take it as the inspired word of God, clearly the Bible is saying that Jesus is God. That gives you the first step when someone says to you, I don't see where in the Bible it ever says that Jesus is God. Well, here's a few verses that directly say it by identifying him by names that only God possesses. Okay? Next slide. Here are a couple others just to throw in there. From Philippians 2.6. Okay, I'm putting it up in multiple versions. <laughs> One of the reasons is, as Ben pointed out, there's some translations that are better than others. So I've used a couple because it's just kind of nice to struggle with. I know you guys are big fans of the King James Version. That's why I put it up here. Okay. Let's start with the NASB. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay. Philippians 2.6 from the NIV. Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay. Okay. Our theological expert has told us, or one of them, I should say, has told us that the NIV is the best. The King James, by the way, and I don't mean to put this up here to surreal on it, but it says, who being in the form of God, again, all of them say that he's, the first two just come right out and say the form of God, the nature of God. I just, this, this language is so curious. No wonder some people have trouble with it. And look at this verse. It says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Oh, so he's not robbing anybody, so he can do everything else. The reason I put the King James up there is because you'll notice that most groups that deny the Trinity use the King James Version for a lot of the verses they cite. 
And I'm not sure that if someone showed me this verse at my door and said, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I'm not even sure I understand what that means in our modern day parlance. So Jesus decided not to rob anybody? Okay. All right, gotcha. Right. Let me, let me point something out on this. One of the things, that the reason I even put this verse up there is some people get tripped up by the second part of the verse that says, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. They go, ah, you see, he, he didn't even think he could get it. And this is a very careful thing that we have to be, because one of the rules of understanding the Trinity is just because the different persons within the one being of God have different roles does not mean, and by the way, not only different roles, but that they might actually be subject to one another in different ways. Or they may differentiate what they do or how they come under the will of one another. I don't even know if will's the right word because I'm, I'm trying to use finite human terms to explain something infinite here. But the concept is because they have a relationship with one another does not mean that they are not equal. A lot of people will point to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees saying, Father, is there any way that we could avoid this? Saying, you see, if he had to ask permission and give his will over when he says, not my will, but yours, they can't be equal. One has to be greater than the other. This is what led to the whole church being divided in the early church where they had to have the whole council of Nicaea trying to decide was Jesus a created God that came later or was he always there from the beginning because there were people who believed that he has less power or subject to the Father somehow because of the instances we have in the Bible where Jesus is constantly referring to my Father's will. And you'll see more verses in a second. Follow this rule. Just as a general rule for now, we'll get more detailed, but just because they have different roles and relationships as persons, that does not mean they're not equal and not one. My head's spinning even just trying to get that concept out of my mouth. All right, but keep that in mind because that's the place where so many of the non-Trinitarians will try to convince us to go, you see, he was subject to the Father or he's at the right hand of the Father. All these verses that means he can't be equal. Okay? Jesus could voluntarily give his will over to the Father in a relationship together. That doesn't mean they're not equal. Next slide. What does Jesus say of himself? I can't tell you the number of people that I talk to who say to me, well, I heard, because <laughs> they never read the Bible themselves, I heard that Jesus never actually claimed that he was God. I'd like to dispel that once and for all through a number of different passages. Okay? So we just looked at the fact that the Bible, if you take it as true, and you can debate it if you want, that's a different story. We already covered that series. But if you take it as true, the Bible says that Jesus is God. Now let's make sure that Jesus said that he was God just to dispel those people who actually think, well, he never actually said it. John eight twenty four. Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, sound familiar, those words again, that God uses for himself, you will die in your sins. The form that he uses for the I am he is the one that I underlined earlier. It's a long, long, complicated analysis of language from Aramaic to Greek to Hebrew. I'll just give you the shortcut, because I'm not qualified to walk you through Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew in that much detail. But the shortcut is almost every theologian who looks at this agrees that Jesus' words of I am, he is invoking the divine identity. 
John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Again, the same kind of invocation of the divine identity of I am. In that passage, of course, he's arguing with the Pharisees, and he is trying to show his superiority. And that isn't just like an I existed before Abraham. It was a continual I am going back. Okay? So I know I'm just plucking verses out of different places, but I'm just trying to show you the quotations. If you want the context, you can look it up. But the point is, the statements are clear that he's making this identity as the divine God of the universe. John 13, 19. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Again, speaking to his disciples about future events to come, and he's saying, the reason I'm telling you this is so that you'll know when these things come to pass, I am he. Next slide. John 18, 5 through 6. They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, he said to them, and by the way, just to give you the context, he's being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? So they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene, he said to them, I am he. Says it once. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Interesting that I'd never noticed the they drew back and fell to the ground part. I read that story so many times, I'd never actually noticed that. So I went to look into what commentators said. What is that all about? And there's a little bit of a split, but the majority come out that it wasn't like like the disciples resisting or them all pushing back, like literally the force of his words caused them to fall down. Actually having God in our midst declaring his divinity caused them to fall down. I mean, this was like not the Jedi mind trick of like, he's not the Messiah you're looking for. You know, this was the, this was the I am he, and they literally just fell down. You know? Yeah. And then got up and said, all right, let's get him. I've cited a lot of verses from John, and, you know, I'll be honest at this point. When I was doing this study, I started thinking, if I were in my courtroom trying to present a case for the Trinity, right now I would hear somebody stand up and go, objection, all you've done so far is cite from John. Clearly John is deluded. John is writing the Gospel of John, trying to prove that Jesus is God. He writes Revelation, when who knows what kind of things he saw in that that whole thing. And next to all the God, monsters, all these crazy things that he's seeing, he's identifying Jesus as God. Can you cite to anybody other than John? Because at this point, we think he's insane. Okay, so I cited from Mark, just to show you that somebody else in our Gospels, and again, in the Gospels that we believe are without error and are divinely inspired by God, there is somebody else who supports John on this point very clearly by recording Jesus making these words. And I think these, to me, are the ones that I would have the most trust in. The people who say that, that, that Jesus never said he was God totally ignore his trial. Because here is Jesus on trial, standing before the whole group of people, arrested in the middle of the night, humiliated, standing there bound, And his life is on the line. So now they're not asking him like, hey, theoretically, are you God by any chance? Like they do in other instances of the Bible. In this particular case, they come straight out and say, Jesus, you are on trial for blasphemy. And you understand that the penalty for blasphemy is death. Okay? 
Now let me ask you the question again, knowing that your answer will incriminate you and you will die. Let's ask the question one more time. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, this is his answer, right from the transcript of the trial, Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am. Once again, invoking his divine identity. I am. And just to seal his fate a little harder, goes on. That's not enough to just answer the question in the affirmative. He says, And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven, a description that only applies to God Almighty. So for the people who say that Jesus never identified himself as God, here's his trial. Most people that approach me with that kind of question, like, well, I don't even know if Jesus said that he was God. It's like, really? What do you think they killed him for? It wasn't murder. What were the capital offenses in the Roman Empire? Murder? Or at least even under Jewish law? Robbery? Robbery? You know? Uh, he didn't do any of those things. Adultery? Wasn't doing that. Unless you believe the Da Vinci Code, right? We debunked that for four weeks. Okay, so what's left? It's blasphemy. What was the blasphemous word that he spoke? It's right here, according to Jewish law. He equated himself with God. So, even if you're going to believe the whole Bible's junk and it doesn't mean anything, you have to at least say that historically, forget even Mark, historically, what was Jesus crucified for? It couldn't have been murder, robbery, or adultery. They would have made a big deal out of that. So historically, we know, even without the Bible, that he was crucified for blasphemy. He must have said he was God. So where have I gotten you to? Basically, what I'm trying to show you is step-by-step, step, not just John, but Mark, supports the claim and records Jesus' own words. We have the Bible saying that Jesus is God. We have Jesus claiming that he's God. That gives us, if you're going to believe in the Bible, and the New Testament at least, it gives us the undeniable statement that it says he's God. What are we going to do with it next? That's where we go next. And when you're dealing with the Trinity, he might have actually been the Son of God, but there's many people in the church history that have come out and said, well, we believe he was the Son of God, but that doesn't mean he was the same as God. And that's really what starts to hurt us when we're trying to explain the Trinity people. Because if you guys remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about my uncle Al Pacino and all those crazy comments that he has, I mean, it's, you know, he's trying to throw out the doctrine of the Trinity not by saying, I just don't believe this. He's just trying to show that, wait a minute, I don't think that it makes sense to say that God sits at the right hand of himself. So when you say that Jesus will sit at the right hand of God the Father, it's like, you're just telling me right there that he's not the same thing as God, you see? And those are the kind of nuances we're trying to deal with. Yeah? There was a belief, the idea of God he comes in three different modes uh, and that he's one but he yeah he comes in three different modes so like uh, he's God the father and then he transforms he's still one being somehow transforms into the son and so and then somehow now his third progression is like the spirit and so the church want, I mean that's the idea of the, of the apostles creed the Nicene creed mm -hmm. is saying you know three in one and we do this today in, our, in the church. Like you said, uh, we call him the Holy Spirit as if, you yeah. know, and so, because he's the comforter. It's like, very tempting to our minds because we're so finite to dissect God into three different persons and deal with them individually, you know, like, but never deal with them together. 
And I feel that not only does that not honor God for his true nature, we're kind of recreating God, but then when someone is dealing with us trying to ask us to explain God, that mindset will get us tripped up. Now, I'm not saying that we'll ever really be able to fully appreciate this concept of three persons and one being. You know, and I, and I said in the first week that all these explanations about it, it's kind of like ice cream, but some strawberry and some, those, those explanations fall so short of who God is, or even it's kind of like an orange is a peel and there's the whatever. Because yeah, like, yeah, like, like there's ice and steam and water and all, you know, the problem is, the, the problem with that is it trips us up when we get pressed beyond these simple analogies. And second of all, Nothing about God, that's why one of the things I put up on the screen was God is unique. His triune nature is so unlike anything in nature that for us to try to compare him to like an orange or water or anything else, it, it almost is laughable because the whole point is that he alone has this infinite and beautiful nature that we can never really put into our heads and we're always trying to dumb it down into something that people you know like can touch and feel and go oh it's like an orange or like an egg or like water or something and it's like no I think that that our analogy will fall apart very quickly because there is nothing like God he keeps saying who is like me nothing is like me and yet we're always trying to make analogies like God is like this it's like read the scriptures there's nothing like him let me read to you the basic definition we've used because I want to make sure that we used it in the first week and we kind of decided this was our basic definition. Here it is. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about how the critics analyze this, because you guys are focusing on this right now. Here's a verse, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Let's just look at this for a second. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Okay? People look at this and say, wait, God is doing something here. God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name. So God must be the superior being and Jesus must be something else because, again, we're just dealing with that verse we're talking about where he said that he's not grasping equality. You move on and you look in this area and it says, therefore God exalted him. And people start to use these things. Now, you mentioned the one where he's on the cross. You know, if he's asking or even step back one night, he's in the garden saying, and we just, you know, we went through that. Like, what? is that all about, okay? And the point is, that rule that I've thrown out, you got to keep using it, that just because they have a relationship together where they work out whose will they'll submit to or how that whole thing works, does not mean they're not equal. The fact that Jesus says, I will submit to your will, does not mean that he's not God. You just have to believe that for a moment because we're going to walk through and try to keep proving that, okay? Go to the next slide and let's add a verse on here. Let's go back. I was going first Old Testament and New Testament. Let's flip it around. We're trying to understand something in the New Testament. And we're thinking, this seems to almost say that God is not the same thing. That somehow he's going to exalt Jesus. Okay? And again, you have to look and use the Old Testament as a reference always in who is God. This is Isaiah 45, 23. Again, an identifier of a characteristic of God. 
I have sworn by myself, the Lord has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and, and will turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue and swear allegiance. What that says to me in plain air, like, why is that verse up there? Again, God is telling us, how do you know that I am God? Because every knee will bow to me. Would it make any sense that then there'd be a verse in Philippians that says that God will cause every knee to bow to somebody else that's not God? So it's a little bit of this really difficult process that we have where when you see a verse that seems to say that somehow Jesus is not God, which this doesn't say that, what it's really almost alluding to, and some critics will say, well, it seems like there's a different role between them, or it seems like one is not quite as equal as the other. What God is saying in this verse is, I will exalt him and make sure that every knee bows to him. And in the Old Testament, we know that the only person who every knee will bow to is God. God himself in Philippians is saying that Jesus is my equal. And every knee will bow to him because he will get the glory that's due God alone. And it would make no sense to give that to any earthly prophet, any regular person, any sub-God, any whatever you want to call it. Because God swears in Isaiah that to me every knee will bow. And he says, I have sworn by myself that this is true. And I'm not going to change my mind that the only person to whom every knee will bow is me. So if outside of a Trinitarian view, Philippians makes no sense. It's craziness. It goes back to your argument about the writer of Philippians now is nuts. So not only is Jesus nuts, but the guy in Philippians is nuts. The whole New Testament is nuts. Or, or, it's unbelievably true, but only from a Trinitarian point of view. What I'm trying to make in this slide as an argument is, if you don't believe in the Trinity, the New Testament makes no sense. You might as well just chuck it out the window. Because then once you start doubting a verse like Philippians, you've got to start doubting all of Paul's writings. And once you start doubting all of Paul's writings... You got to move to John and think maybe he's nuts. And then you got to move to Mark. And who's left by the time you take out Mark, John, and Paul? You got a little bit of those other guys at the end? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all those little books that you can read in like half, in like, you know, half a minute. Those guys at the end, you know? Um, and also, this is like a very early hymn. I mean, we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. They say that this is probably one of the earliest uh, writings, earlier than Mark, earlier than. So this is obviously what the church, the apostles, held to. Um, so to deny me. Yeah, from a biblical history point of view, Paul's writings were written before, most likely before, the early gospels were written. And you've also alluded to the fact that it's a hymn, which is correct. That actually these words, most people believe, came from a hymn that the early church sang to repeat the truths about God. Okay? All right, look, if you're going to attack and criticize Christianity and say the Bible's not true, hey, well, that's a different discussion. Take me on. But if you're going to believe that the Bible is true or profess that it is, which is what most people who come knocking at your door and say, you know, hi, we're from the Watchtower Society, or hi, we're from the Mormon Church down the street, or hi, we're from the whatever they are, most of them profess to believe in the Bible. Oh, yeah, of course, it's got a lot of errors in it. But, you know, for us as Christians, Take me on if you don't believe the Bible's true. That's fine. We, can, we had that discussion. I'll take you on on that. 
But if you're going to tell me it's true, we start from just that presumption. If you give me that as a given, I'm going to tell you that you cannot understand the New Testament without a Trinitarian understanding. It's rubbish. It just doesn't hold up. Next slide. Here's another example of what Jolene will, will say. Why is Jesus in the garden asking God for permission to escape this thing? Alicia asks us why is John 3.16 says that God sent the Son. Here's another one where Jesus himself, from his own mouth, interacting with Mary Magdalene upon his resurrection from the tomb, says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. They're like, wait a minute, you're going up to see him? Like, I thought you were him. Wait a minute, hold on. Notice it says the Father. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, I am the Father. Jesus says, I am God, of whom the Father is one of the persons of that being. But here's where critics come in. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. Good so far. And my God and your God. That last little phrase is one of the ones that you'll cite it over and over as, how can the Trinity be true with this understanding? 100% God, 100% man. Right. He's touching on both So you, you see that in that, he's identifying not only himself as God, but... The man, or the okay. man standing in front of Logically speaking, does God saying to the other nature of himself that you are God, does that take away from his own godness? If I can state it in English. Here you have God saying to God or identifying God as my God and your God. Okay? I wish I could tell you that there's a great verse that just comes right after this to just explain this one away. But you have to look at all the verses we've already looked at where Jesus identifies himself as God and now you either say, all right, so we were throwing out the whole New Testament or we're realizing that what God is saying is, yeah, I am God and he's God. We're both God. And I'm making that declaration before you. That I send to my Father and I also send to my God. But there's nothing in that that implies that subjectiveness or, I'm sorry, that he's subject to or otherwise not the same. You know, it all comes back to what John begins in his prologue using that very careful part of the Greek. He makes it so clear. You know, and some people will just marvel at John because they think, how in the world can this guy ever have used Greek so well to be able to create this or present this truth to us? That Jesus is God, but God is not limited to Jesus. All right? Now, I promise you at the beginning that I'm going to give you the crude rule and see how it works. I'm going to repeat it one more time so it's clear in our minds. Every single person who has a problem with the Trinity is not worried that there are three persons. They're just worried that there's more than one. And so my crude rule to you is if I can get you to two, I can get you to three. I'm hoping what I'm doing is I'm building a case to get you to two. That John's words that we studied two weeks ago in the prologue of John, the brilliance of them, John clearly believes that Jesus is God. But that God is not limited to Jesus. He's establishing a Trinitarian doctrine. He might not say in the next verse, oh, by the way, and then there's a guy named the Holy Spirit, and he's in there too. 
But it doesn't matter. Because the people who have trouble with the Trinity, it's just because we've moved beyond one person of God to two. I feel like we're already at two right now. You have the Bible making it clear that Jesus is God. You have Jesus himself saying that he's God. And I hope I've established that the New Testament makes no sense unless you believe that Jesus is God. It would mean that Paul was smoking a lot of glue when he was writing instead of writing under the inspired Holy Spirit. Okay? So if the Bible says he's God, John says he's God, Jesus says he's God, the New Testament doesn't make sense, I feel like the logical conclusion for us, if you believe the Bible, and I know it's an if, is that Jesus is God. And the Father is God. And that means there's two persons that are God. One God. So a lot of times when we're scurrying through the Bible trying to find an instance where it says, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, one person, you're like, I can't find that verse. Or you're like me that used to look in the concordance for the word Trinity and you find out it's not there. And you start to believe what people are saying, like, oh yeah, the church made that up after the fact. Actually... I got you too. Now, here's some holes I'm going to poke in my own theories that I want you to hold me to. I already thought of them in advance for you. I think it'd be interesting for us to find out was God's nature revealed as triune in the Old Testament? Or is this just a New Testament thing? Because I think that's fair to ask. We're using a lot of Old Testament verses to allude to who God is, and we see in the New Testament a greater revelation of God. He reveals more of himself to us. Is that true in the Old Testament? I think we need to research that, and we're going to have an answer one way or another. Like, can we establish more about the triune nature of God purely from an Old Testament view? Okay? I think in the next inquiry after that is whether or not we succeed in that inquiry, let's add the third person. Who is the Holy Spirit and how is he relate to this one being we know as God? Look, people have a right to ask the question, and we should have an answer. Okay? If we're going to be fair, I mean, when I put these topics together, a lot of times I'm thinking, okay, I have enough evidence to present a case, but what's the cross-examining party going to say? What's the other guy going to get up and say? Like, that's the reason I had to find something in Mark, because I was like, all right, enough about this John guy. We heard enough of his verses. Clearly, he's the only witness you have. Do you have anybody else? It's like, uh, actually, I have Mark and I have a couple others. You know? But that's kind of what I'm thinking. So now I'm thinking, okay, we got to this whole goofy doctrine that I've invented about if I can get you to two, I can get you to three. But it's fair that I know that an inquisitive, cross-examining party would say, what if I took the New Testament away from you? What would you do then? Could you establish, not, you don't have to establish the whole trinity. Use your whole goofy, if I can get you to two, three doctrine. Can you do that with the Old Testament? Can you show us? Because in a way... I don't, want to, I don't want to say this in too irreverent of a fashion, but, you know, there are people who are intelligent enough, who are not believers, and actually a lot of them, who are going to say something like, are you telling me that, like, the whole time he had the Jewish people reciting that whole God is one thing, that God was, like, crossing his finger behind his back, going, like, <laughs> wait till we get to the sequel. You're going to find this. is going to totally throw you. I mean, what was he doing? And that's a fair question. 
I think you were starting to hit on it, Jolene, when you said that maybe they weren't ready for it. Like having just gotten out of a pagan world of multi-gods that he was trying to establish a monotheistic religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but those guys, you don't see them till the sequel, and they'll show up, and then you'll be really surprised. I don't think it's like hard to say that Holy Spirit is God, because duh, there's this mystical being, and it does a lot of powerful stuff. So everybody's like, "Whoa, this is this is powerful." But when I you point it out to people who are non-Trinitarians, a lot of them will say. Oh no, that's, we know that God is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is really God as a spirit doing things. In other words, sometimes it's easier to cross out the Holy Spirit or even include it in the Trinity by neutralizing that he's really a separate person and just saying, oh no, no, they're just, Holy Spirit is just another name for God because he is the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? Jesus says, I have to go away so I can send you the Holy Spirit. Does that mean the Holy Spirit's subject to Jesus? I don't know. Maybe that's just a deal they made. <laughs> like, you know, here's how we're going to do this, you know. You're there, you do your part. When you're done, you go back up and you can reascend back to your glory and I'll come down and hang out with these people for a while. All right? I don't know how that works, but it doesn't diminish from their equality is the rule that I want to hang on to and I'll look into that verse and let you know. Let's just kind of bring it to a close. I think I made my case. I think it hopefully will stick. And what I was about to say earlier is, I, look, I, I've confessed this almost every time we've done this talk. When I sit down and I'm trying to study this, I'm trying to put it together, I really feel the strong temptation to throw it away and just go, forget it. We just can't understand the Trinity. We're just not going to get it, which is what most churches do. They err on that side. You know, it, They know it's going to create more questions than it resolves, sometimes more doubts than it helps. Because Christians can deal with that schizophrenic God where they pick and choose which one of him they need because that way they're only dealing with one at a time. They go, yeah, the Lord's God is only one, you know, because I'll just use one at a time. It just doesn't honor who God is. And that's the reason that I'm struggling against all temptation to just toss this talk out the window because I want to honor God for who he is. Yes, I would love to sit down with God and say, did you... Give a clue to those poor Hebrews in the desert about your triune nature? Or was it just like a big surprise that came later? <laughs> Did you calculate that it might freak some of them out so much that they might miss the whole point? You know? Or was that part of your plan all along? That the way they were going to crucify Jesus was because it freaked them out so much? I don't know. But I, but I acknowledge those things openly because I want you to know that I don't have anywhere near the answers to this inquiry. What I do have is just a desire that we go just a little bit deeper so that at least when someone says to us the simple ones like, well, God never, Jesus never said he was God, and, and we at least answer those. And at least say, look, I don't care what else you believe. The New Testament clearly says that he was God. You want to talk about why the New Testament isn't legitimate? Great. You want to talk about why the whole Bible isn't legitimate? Great. You want to talk about all of it? Fine. But if we at least start from a common ground that we're going to believe what the Bible says, you have to come to that conclusion. All right? Let's pray. Lord, I know reading English words sometimes we can't even appreciate the depth of the meaning in the particular words that you chose to identify yourself as divine. I wonder, Lord, if 
we ever really could appreciate them the same way those guards appreciated them the night that they arrested you, when just the proclamation of your divinity was enough to cause them to fall down and stumble. Lord, I feel like sometimes we take these topics and we dissect them in a test tube environment without actually even grasping what we're dealing with. That we are touching upon the very nature of who you are as you've revealed it. Something that if you just spoke the words would cause people to fall down just because the truth of your divinity is so amazing. And here we are kind of tossing it around like a beach ball of intellectual arguments as opposed to really understanding and grasping the impact of your divinity. Lord, your word tells us that the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to come to an understanding of who you are. And I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to do just that. God, reveal your divine nature to us, your true triune nature, the one that's so hard for us to understand. I know that even supernaturally you could do that. And that's what I'm asking for. Between now and the time that we conclude this series, Lord, I pray that when we look back, that we've actually grown, not just intellectually, but in our respect for who you are. And yeah, Lord, I would like to honestly know more about you. I'd like to appreciate the nuances in who you are how three co-equal, co-eternal persons can share one divine nature, one being. I admit that I'm seeking to understand that. And I pray, Lord, that you honor us just in doing that by giving us a small piece of supernatural understanding. pray all this in your name. Amen.